It's December 26th, and the day after Christmas, and so I have sort of this kind of question to us, and the question is, what now? What do we do now? Uh, we opened our gifts yesterday, probably around, oh, I guess it was, I don't know what time Jackson got us up. Well, I'll just say this, I was wrapping gifts at 6.30 in the morning on Christmas morning, because... Um, didn't want to do it the night before, so I was like, we're just going to make one long day of it, and I'm going to get some sleep. So I wrapped a few gifts, and then I put the ones I didn't want to wrap in a bag because, you know, but you have to, I mean, it's like you have to have some gifts to unwrap, but I will tell you right now, it was nice just having bags because there was not a mess to clean up afterwards. It was wonderful, and so we had a good Christmas. Everything was going actually splendid. We went over and spent uh, Christmas uh, Day uh, over at my sister's new house, and so they prepared food and everything, and everything was going great until it was time to go get leftovers, and since our house is like right across the road, I just walked over there and got the leftovers and brought them back, and I had this pile of leftovers, and as I was walking down in my Crocs and my pajamas down the gravel road back to my house, I, um, my Croc got caught on a rock and stake went everywhere, just went flying. I don't know if mom's heard this story yet, but these like $40 steaks went flying everywhere. And I looked at the steaks, and I had a few words to say, but I didn't say them because it's Christmas, and I'm preaching today. And I look at the steaks on the ground, and the question is, what now? Now, I just want you to know that I have a firm 30-second rule. All right, I just do. And that's not just for in the house. That is outside. That is in restaurants. And if you have been with me eating in a restaurant, you know that I am not above picking food up off the floor in a restaurant. Something's going to kill me. It might as well be that. Um, I even wrote a song about it one time. It's called Shrimp on the Floor. It's a story about a guy who ate shrimp off the floor of the Japanese restaurant after it was tossed to his wife. It bounced off her head and onto the floor because she does not catch food in her mouth, because she's not 10 years old. But anyway, I picked that food up off the floor, and I ate it. And it was still as good as when it was originally tossed. It's funny enough, though, I did get the flu like the very next day. I don't think that either one of those had anything to do with one another. But I see the steaks, and by the way, it wasn't just steaks. If it had just been steak, I'm not like a big steak person, so if it had just been steaks, I wouldn't have been like mortified. But it wasn't just steaks. It was these chocolate chip cookies that my sister had made, and they were quite good. I'll admit, they were quite good, Brittany. And they were laying in the middle of the gravel road, and it was like a muddy gravel road. It wasn't like a clean gravel road. And the Rice Krispie treats that my mom had made, she makes the best Rice Krispie treats because, you know, Paula Deen, you know, when she says butter? Well, mom takes that to light, and she, like, adds twice the butter and twice the marshmallow. I don't know if that's how Paula Dean says it, but that, I mean, they're laying in the road. And so I had steak, cookies, and Rice Krispie treats. So I went for the Rice Krispie treat. And I picked them up, and I'm like, everything else is just going to be eaten by something other than me. So I brought it back. I was able to salvage the corn and the green beans because they were in a closed container. I got them back, and I'm like, I'm going to eat this Rice Krispie treat right now. And I turned it over, and they were covered in mud on the backside. And the 30-second rule does not apply to that. And so I threw them away, and I went and pouted on my couch. And I was like, what now? Oh, Lordy day. 
So I was going to go in a different direction this morning than, than going back into Revelation. But um, in fact, last night I had, I had pretty much everything prepared and I usually get up about 5 o'clock in the morning or 5.30 on a Sunday morning to go back through my message just to make sure I got everything squared away. But it is not, I, it, it is, it has been, I have been known to completely rewrite a sermon on Sunday morning. Um, and just do completely, and so I was, I was thinking about doing that, and the title of the message was What Now? But then I was like, no, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look through Revelation again, and it, it dawned on me that what chapter 14 is about could tie into this idea of what now. Now, what do I mean by that? Sometimes the days after Christmas are a letdown, and you know exactly what I mean, okay? They're a letdown, even for the Grinch. And the Grinch is, there they can be a letdown, okay? And I am not a Grinch. I'm not a Grinch. I am the guy, though, that as soon as gifts are unwrapped, that I want to clean everything up. Or actually, that Chris was like, that's a lie. I don't I don't want to clean it up. I want somebody else to clean it up afterwards, okay? I want all the Christmas stuff gone and it cleaned up, but it's still out because somebody else didn't do it. And so <laughs> Christmas is the days after Christmas can be a letdown. All right, And there's all this buildup to the Christmas gatherings and the special services and the meals and, of course, the presents. But starting that day after on December 26th, all the decorations in the Christmas candy are 50% off and people are returning, you know, poorly fitting unwanted socks with a general malaise back to the store. I mean, that's just generally the post-Christmas blues. Now, I'm going to tell you right now is that there are a lot of pastors that will that will, are standing behind a pulpit this morning, and I'm not criticizing them at all. Wonderful pastors who are going to stand behind the pulpit this morning, and they're going to say, get out of your malaise, get out of the post-Christmas blues, and realize that Christ that was born yet, that, that we celebrated yesterday, is still alive today, right? And I give that a hearty amen, a hearty amen. But I'm not going to preach that this morning, and here's why. I understand it. That's just part of life, right? There's been this big build-up to Christmas, right? The Christmas holiday, and now it's the day after, and like, what now, right? And so I understand it. So I'm not going to criticize you this morning about it. I'm not going to beat you down about it, because I understand that. Here's what I want to do this morning. I want to, using some of Revelation, I want to talk to you a little bit about how to get through that and how to make the post-Christmas days even more, even more meaningful. And so what I really want to do is I want to help us celebrate this morning, all right, what Christ has accomplished in our lives. That's what I'm hoping, because it's completely understandable. Christmas is the celebration that we look forward to, and I believe that many, if not most, believers appreciate the true meaning of the holiday, right? We always hear the, the true meaning of this, you know, remember the reason for the season and all of that. And I, I believe, I, I'm an optimist, I believe that most Christians, even in the midst of all the hoopla, really understand what Christmas is all about, okay? Yeah, we get caught up in all the food and the celebration and the fruit cake. Somebody does. But, you know, it really is just stuff that got, like, crammed together and put in, a like, a cake form. But people get excited about that, and I understand it, and so the letdown is natural. So instead of chastising you or myself for being caught up, what I want to do is I want to encourage you to press on because that is the point of Revelation 14. Now, as we re we're going to go through the whole chapter this morning, but we're going to do it briefly. But I'm just going to give you the main point, and the main point is really easy. It's this, okay? 
believers who are sealed by Christ, believers who are sealed by Christ, will worship with Him and to Him and for Him for eternity. Okay? Believers are going to worship for eternity. Number two, judgment is real. Judgment is real. Hell is no joke. And number three, Christ is returning and He's returning soon. That's the main point of chapter 14. That's not hard to understand. So what I want to do is I want to kind of tease out some other applications from it this morning, if you'll, if you'll let me do that, okay? I just want to tease out some other applications. Sometimes it's important that we are reminded that there will be a day when we will be judged for our deeds. Every one of us. Every one of us will be judged for our deeds. And the only difference is that some of us are covered in the blood of Christ. And so God will be looking at Christ instead of us. Thank the Lord. Thank the Lord that God will be looking at Christ instead of us. I don't want him looking at me. All right, I want him looking at Jesus who has paid that price for me. But we need to be reminded that there is going to be this day where people are going to be judged. And there is going to be a day when there are going to be people who are judged who are not covered in the shed blood of Christ. For those who are, there will be eternal celebration. It will be this, it, it will be, you know, this is really cheesy, but it's true. It's like it's Christmas every day, okay? It's just Christmas every day. And then there are others who will go to eternal torment. It's just, it's true. It's, it's not, it, there, I, I really believe that there are some individuals that read Scripture and they're saying, oh, there's definitely a heaven, but there's not really a hell. But, by the and, and then there are those other individuals that believe in heaven. They say they believe in heaven. They say they believe in hell. But if you look at the fruit of their life, you'll say, You're, you fib. You don't really believe in hell or you wouldn't live that way. Because our deeds do matter. What we do does matter. Because it is symb- it's not just symbolic. It is evidence of whether or not we truly believe. So we need to be reminded that Christmas only matters. Now catch me here. We always say, we got to remember the reason for the season, right? And there's even shirts and mugs with that on it. But we got to remember this. There's only one reason that Christmas matters. Christmas only matters because Easter matters. If there is no Easter, there is, there is no reason to celebrate Christmas. I'm just going to tell you right now. If Easter doesn't exist, Christmas does not matter. It's just another day. But I'm going to go one step further, tying into Revelation 14. If the second coming doesn't matter, then neither does Easter. If Christ is not returning to to harvest, to the harvest, to reap his own, then Easter doesn't matter. And what's the point, right? But he is. He is coming back. He is coming back soon. And he is going to gather his own unto himself. And it's a day that we celebrate and that we look forward to. And so I want to walk through Revelation 14, and I just want to give you some encouragement of what to look forward to in your life and how to deal with these days that are coming pretty much every day leading up to the next Christmas. Because I think some, day, some people, the reason what we get in this malaise or this, this kind of this post-Christmas depression, and I don't mean clinical depression, but like, you know what I mean, the post-Christmas blues, I think some of the reason that we do that at times is because we say, oh, we got to go back to our lives. Right? I mean, let's just be honest. That's, that's the thing. We've got to go back to our lives. 
Like for that brief moment in December, it was like we were, we were, we were in somebody else's life. We were like in, like in a Hollywood, like we were in Miracle on 34th Street. Or, or what's that one or the wonderful, what is it? Wonderful, I'd never seen it, but I hear it's good. Um, I know some of you are saying, you're not really Baptist. Um, <laughs> I watch Die Hard and Lethal Weapon, folks. That's what I watch. And so <laughs> that's a wonderful life. Now, here's the deal, okay, is that we, we think that our lives are that being played out. But it's not. You know, we have to go back to the real world. And the truth is, is that the real world is the, the only thing that we know for 364 days out of the year. So let's, tie, let's just jump right in here, and let's look at, at Revelation chapter 14. I want to pray first, and then we're going to go in. Father, I ask that you would bless us as we read your text. I pray that we would understand it, that we would grasp it, that we would wrestle with it, Lord, and that it would help us be encouraged for what is to come, encouraged to live our lives with joy, but also to live our lives in the fulfillment of the Great Commission. That's what I pray, Father, is that we would be urgently and earnestly interested in, in fulfilling the Great Commission, in, in obediently following Christ to the ends of the earth so that others might hear and know the gospel. Lord, we love you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, let's look at Revelation chapter 14, 1 through 5. Now, this is the beautiful thing. If you have been here through the majority of my other messages and have been listening to how we're interpreting the text, Revelation 14 is not complicated. It's really not. It's not complicated at all. So I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on the, like the ins and outs. All right, I'm going to mention it, and then we're going to move on. Starting in verse 1, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the Lord and before the four living creatures and before the elders. Now, no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouths no lie was found, and they are blameless. Now just real quick, let me walk through that and explain some of the terminology and the, symbol, the, uh, the, the, um, the symbols that are listed here. So the vision that John has has now moved from the earth, where we were focused on the beasts, to heaven. Okay, So when he says Mount Zion, we're not thinking of Jerusalem, we're thinking of heaven, Okay, where God is. So we're looking at the throne here, All right, and there stood the Lamb, so we picture that as Jesus, and with Jesus, 144,000 who were sealed with the name of Christ and the name of His Father on their forehead. Okay, Now we've already said the 144,000, back in all the way, I believe in chapter 7, that that represents... All the people who have been redeemed for all time, okay? That's who that is. They are the redeemed. They are believers. It's not a specific 144,000. It's not like this, this like uh, minority group uh, that, are, that have been handpicked. These are individuals who have been sealed by the Father through the work of the Holy Spirit. And this is in comparison to those individuals who have been sealed by the beast with the mark of the beast, right? 
And so in the previous chapter, we talked about how there are those who would accept the mark of the beast in order to buy and purchase and basically live in society. And by accepting the mark of the beast, they have rejected Christ. So these are individuals who are standing with Christ in this vision in Mount Zion in the temple of the Lord. These All these believers, and they have been sealed on the forehead with the name of the Father and the Son. Okay, And that is a metaphorical, it's a symbolic seal. All right, just like the mark of the beast is not a literal seal. It's not like a barcode. All right, I know that everybody is freaking out because they're talking about putting chips in us that are able to signal whether or not we have the vaccine, folks. That's not the mark of the beast, okay? It's it's not a good idea, but it's not the mark of the beast, okay? These are this is these are symbols, all right? And basically what it is saying is these are individuals who have been set apart for the work of the Lord. These are believers that we're talking about. And it says, I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on the harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and before the elders. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. So this is a song that only believers know. Okay, this is a new song. This is a song that is that only believers can understand. This is a song that that uh, only believers can comprehend. What does it mean here? This is this is not like learning a new song, you know, like on the radio or in Caleb or something like that. What's happening? It means that this is true worship. This is genuine worship. These are individuals that are singing in genuine worship that nobody else. It can't be faked. Okay, it can't be faked. It can't be, this isn't uh, uh, play school or something like that. Unbelievers can't sing this song because it's only worship that is meant for believers to the Lord. And in verse 4 it says, It is those who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. Now let me pause right there. This is the first time we've seen that. Now that would make it seem as if the 144,000 are those who have never been with a woman. All right, who have never been with a woman. Now, there's an issue there, okay? This obviously is symbolic. And I will even say this. Even individuals who disagree with me that the 144,000 are all believers from all time, they believe that it's a literal 144,000, believe that that is symbolic, okay? Because that's not possible, okay? That's not possible. These are individuals... For, for them to be individuals who have never been with a woman, first of all, we would be saying that those are only men. Well, no one interprets it that way, okay? The 144,000 are men and women from all time who have believed in Christ. So what does it mean that they have never defiled themselves with women for they are virgins? Here's what it means. They have never committed idolatry. They do not follow anyone but the Lord. In the Old Testament and the New Testament, oftentimes our relationship with the Lord is characterized as a marriage. Okay, if we look at the book of Hosea, all right, if we look at the book of Hosea, the entire book of Hosea is about this prophet who marries a prostitute. And the prostitute ends up defiling herself with these other individuals, right? Well, in that book, the prostitute, all right, is actually symbolic for Israel, who prostitutes herself out for all these other gods. So our relationship with the Lord is characterized as a marriage. The church is the bride of Christ, 
and Christ is the groom, the groom is coming. And what he's saying here, these are individuals who have never committed spiritual idolatry with another god. They're not chasing after other gods. These are individuals who have remained with Christ. And that's what believers are. Believers are individuals who have no other god besides God himself. All right? And Christ as his son. So these are individuals who are not committing idolatry. Now that does not mean that they have never committed idolatry. Okay? We it's not that. It's that the sum total of their life that has been committed to the Lord. That's what's happening here. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. It means that their commitment to Christ is solid. Now here are some takeaways. We've already said that the 144,000 are believers from all time, sealed by the Father, and are being compared to those who accepted the beast. Number two, we've said that the redeemed are those who did not chase after other gods, after idols. They are virgins, meaning that they are not adulterers after other gods. And the redeemed are those who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. What does that mean? It means that we don't have our own agenda. Our agenda is the Lord's agenda. We don't have priorities set outside of Christ, but every one of our priorities is set inside of Christ. Now, here's where I want us, I want to kind of make a side application if I could. Because the truth is, this is really, the main point is really easy for us to understand. And in fact, I could even say that we've kind of talked about that throughout the book of Revelation. But here's what I want us to focus on this morning, is this idea of following Christ wherever he goes. And I want to tie it back to this kind of post-Christian, post-Christmas malaise. It matters to me that I and that my family follow Christ in everything. It matters to me. And I will speak specifically of myself. It matters to me that I follow Christ in everything that I do. Part of discipleship is learning to deny yourself of those things that dishonor Christ or distract us from Christ. But it also is true, it is also true, that we all live our lives. Now what do I mean by that, that we all must live our lives? Here's the thing. God has made you and I in a unique fashion. Now I'm going to be real personal this morning with myself. Because it's the only thing, it's, it's who I know best, all right? And I want you all to be able, to, and you can take from that what you will, okay? And here's what I mean by that. God has made me unique. Some people say he's special, and I don't mean that in a good way. But anyway, God has made me in a unique way. And what I mean is that he has made me an individual, a man, that has certain desires, certain passions, certain preferences, certain interests, and all those sorts of things kind of make up who I am. It is not an accident, I don't believe, that I enjoy photography. It's not an accident that I enjoy hunting and fishing. I believe God created me that way. It's not an accident that my son Lucas loves playing music. That's not an accident. He learned it really young. I helped teach him, and he has taken off with it. 
but it's because God has created him in such a way to have that desire in his heart. Each of you all have certain desires, certain preferences, certain passions in your life. Now, why do I even bring that up? This seems obvious, right? Well, this is why I bring it up. If we're not careful, we will read passages where it says, for instance, that they follow the Lamb wherever He goes, as if we have to remove all of those things from our life in order to be completely committed to Christ. And I don't believe that that's true. I believe what it means is that set inside the context of who we are, that Rayleigh is an awesome basketball player, okay? I read the news. I do. Your name's in the news. I see it, okay? Man, she can drain some threes, okay? Here's the deal. That inside Rayleigh's passion for basketball, God is not asking Rayleigh to completely quit basketball, all right, and follow Christ, divorce from basketball altogether. That's a passion that God put in her heart. What it means is that within the context of her life, she has to discern and figure out how to commit herself to Christ fully with that des- bringing that desire of basketball along. Does that, does, that sound, does that sound reasonable? What I mean is, Rayleigh, if I could impersonate Rayleigh here for a second, I like basketball. I also love Jesus. How can I honor Christ while also fulfilling these desires that the Lord has placed in my heart? Now, is it true that basketball could become an idol? Absolutely. Could basketball become a distraction from Christ? Absolutely. You also play softball, right? We'll stick to basketball. It's basketball season. All right? So even good things that God has given us a desire and a passion for can be distraction. Now I'm going to get off, we're going to, we won't be talking about Rayleigh's situation, let's talk about other situations. Some of us are passionate about hunting, about music, about photography. Some of us are passionate about our grandchildren and our children. Those are desires and passions that have been put in our heart by the Lord and we're passionate about it. Can grandchildren become an idol? Absolutely. Can children become an idol? Absolutely. So what we have to discern is how do we follow the Lamb wherever He goes within the context of how God has created us with these passions and these desires. And that's the struggle. That's the struggle. Crystal knows that I am interested in a lot of stuff. A lot of stuff. In fact, the only thing I'm really not interested in is cleaning up Christmas decorations after Christmas. Okay? The Lord did not place that desire in my heart, nor is there any passion whatsoever for it. Thank you, Lord. Okay? But I have I am very passionate about a lot of different things, right? And so what I have to figure out in my life is how do I follow the Lamb wherever I go? Also celebrating these passions and these desires that He's created me with. This seems like an odd way of of talking about revelation. I get it, okay? I get it. But as I was kind of running through this, I'm thinking to myself, I follow the Lamb wherever I go. Does that mean that I have to get rid of all this other stuff? And I told you that one of the reasons why that there's such a post-Christmas blue 
if you will, or malaise, is because it's like we have to go back to real life. But you were created for that life. You were created for the day-to-day. Folks, there is no such thing as the mundane. The mundane is usually considered to be negative, like it's mundane as if it's boring, as it's just regular. Folks, that's what you were created for. You were not created for that one or two or three days out of the year where we got this big hip-hop high on the holiday just so that we could go down to like zero the day after. You were created for the regular day, and what we've got to figure out are those passions and those desires that God has filled us with because we all have them. How do we use those for the Lord? Folks, I love to hunt and fish. All right. And God has kind of, and I and I'll say this that God has stirred that interest in me even more in the last couple years. But that could be a huge distraction from this. And it is for a lot of people. How many of you heard the hunters say, My church is out in the woods? That has always curled my toes. Being a very avid hunter, that has always aggravated me to death. All right. This is church. You all are the church. It's not out on a hill in Wyoming as much as I love it. All right? However, I do have a passion for it. I have a desire for it. So my goal is how do I figure out how to use that passion, that desire to honor the Lord? Debbie Hawkinsmith has a passion for Myrtle Beach. I have no way of knowing how she can stir that passion up for the Lord. But I guarantee you she will work at it probably two or three times this coming year. <laughs> Sue has a passion for making things. She's very creative. Very creative. If you went to her house last week and you went back to that back room, you would realize how creative she is. And I believe that Sue has figured out a way of using that creativity and that passion for making things to honor the Lord. Christy has a passion for music. All kinds of music, even the Beatles. <laughs> and she has figured out a way of being able to use that passion for the Lord. And that's what we have to do. That's how we figure out how to get back to the day-to-day and it not be a big bummer. We figure out that the Lord has created us for Himself to live these regular mundane days, but that when you're with Christ, there is no mundane day. Every day that we get to spend with the Lord is special. It is an opportunity for Him to to use us in a way that magnifies and glorifies and exalts Him. And so we look forward to that. Following Christ wherever He goes does not mean that we deny how Christ made us as different individuals with different preferences and desires. It's determining how to honor Christ and live for Christ with those desires and not allowing those desires to become idols. Rather, when appropriately used, those desires and those preferences and those passions help us magnify Christ. You see, this is a side application. It's not the main point of the text. I realize that. But I believe it's an important one. How do we follow the Lamb wherever He goes without denying everything that we truly love? It's by embracing those things that He has blessed us with and using Him for His sake. Let's jump to verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim 
to those who dwell on the earth. In fact, I want to say it like this. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with eternal good news to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory because of the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. And so he says that the, the hour of the Lord is here. It is time. Okay? Now worship him. What do we do when the Lord arrives? We worship. That's the only thing that we can do. And another angel, a second, followed saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon, the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And let me just pause right there and say the sexual immorality could mean twofold. Number one, it could mean literal sexual immorality, all right? Because we know that that is a prominent sin that the Bible teaches against because it is a prominent temptation of, of the sinful, broken world. But it is likely tying into that immorality, that adultery that we talked about before, that this Babylon caused individuals to become idolatrous, to chase after other gods. And another angel, the third, followed them, verse 9, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his or her forehead or his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured out, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment will go up forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receive its, uh, receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for, the de for their deeds follow them. So what are some main points I want you to hear here? Number one, judgment is coming. Judgment is coming for everyone. For the redeemed, this is not a time of terror, but of worship. So we recognize that judgment is coming. But if you are covered in Christ, there is no reason to, to be filled with terror for the judgment of God's wrath because we are covered in the shed blood of Christ. Number two, Christ wins. Satan loses. Sin loses. And all those who reveled in their idolatry will perish. So that's both a point to remember and a warning that those who end up chasing after idols, whether it be money or glory, or power, or even those desires and passions misappropriated for their own worldly gain, they will perish. The third point to this is this. Hell is bad. It's bad. There's a reason why hell is considered to be a curse word. Because it's really bad, folks. I once told you that there were parts of Scripture where, especially in the prophets, when they were trying to describe the throne room of God, that the language was kind of muddled. And it's because it was almost as if you were reading the difficulty that they were having trying to capture the beauty that they were actually seeing, right? And so they, could, they, they only had human words so that's the only thing they had to use, and so they used the best that they could. But even what we read in here is going to be magnified, in, I mean, infinitely. 
what we actually see is going to be so much greater than what we can actually imagine. The same is true for hell. We only have these human words to really understand what hell is going to be like. And so I will just say this. Hell is bad. I've heard a lot of individuals who have tried to characterize hell as an absence of God. And so hell is just like a, it's like a room, but it's absent of God. I've heard other individuals say that hell is just like really cold or that it's really dark or you're just alone or it's just a really sad place. Folks, verse 11, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. People who are in hell are tormented forever and ever. And it's the smoke. Folks, there is fire. Think of Sodom and Gomorrah on a grander scale. Hell is bad. But the fourth one is this. Let the redeemed endure. It says in verse 12, Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Something that we forget, we read Revelation and we read it as like this big warning to unbelievers. Revelation, and Tom Schreiner reminds us of this, Revelation was not written to unbelievers. It was not written to unbelievers. It was written to believers. So you might say, well, why is he talking about all this scary stuff? You know, hell and the beast and all this kind of stuff, if it was written to believers. Because it's things like that that help us to endure, not to, uh, not to forsake our faith or deconstruct or deconvert or apostatize. It's things like this that help us to remain true to Christ. So let's go to the last section of this passage, verse 14. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. If you've ever seen a sickle, it's a long post with a big blade on the end. It's meant to reap wheat and other grains. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he sat on the cloud and swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Why is it that the saints must endure for this moment? Because Christ, metaphorically coming in the clouds, is going to reap those who are his. He's going to gather his unto himself. Those who are believers, those who have been marked by the Son and the Father. That's why we are to endure. See, this is a picture. Remember that, the, that Revelation is not, uh, there's not a specific continuity there. All right? It's not necessarily in order. This is a picture right here of what's going to happen at the very end when it's time for Christ to bring his own unto himself. That's why we are to endure. But verse 17 points us to some, another direction. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another came out, another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are, wrath, are ripe. 
So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. See, there's two harvests. There's the harvest of those who are believers, who will be with Christ, and there are those who will suffer the wrath of God. And that's what happens in judgment. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blow, blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. 1,600 stadia. That's a long way. That's a lot of blood. And that's a lot of wrath. Christ is coming to gather the redeemed. Are you ready? And one of the ways that we are ready is by following the Lamb wherever He goes. Also, there will be no more mercy. At this point where we are in this kind of age of tribulation, the age of the church, God has an enormous amount of mercy on those who are not believers. An enormous amount of... It is mercy that God doesn't smite everyone right now. That's mercy. Just common grace. But know that there will be a moment where there will be no more mercy. When that harvest is ready and that sickle of judgment comes through, if you are not in Christ, there will be no more mercy for you. Which means that as believers that we must share the gospel, this good news, this eternal gospel, with increased urgency. It means that there are people out there that are going to be tormented for eternity unless they believe, repent and believe. But this is for us as we close. Until Christ comes, this is what we should be doing. Evaluate yourself. Based in Scripture, evaluate yourself. Ponder how God made you and with what interests and desires, gifts and talents. And then honestly and earnestly take the time to figure out how you can use those to glorify Him. Maybe it's your job. Maybe you're thinking, there's no way I can use my job. Maybe, you know, I work in a factory. How do I honor Christ by working in a factory? Like, how do I do that? How, how do, like, it's just where I'm at. That's exactly right. And it's not by accident. By God's providence, you've been placed in that factory to honor and to glorify Him. I have a friend who has been working in a factory for almost 30 years. This one factory. And he has been witnessing for Christ for the majority of those years right there in that factory. Praying for those that he works with. Praying with those he works with. I can't tell you how often I hear of the times where he will go to the hospital to visit those who are in the factory that have either gotten sick or been injured or something like that. He's gone to funerals to be with the family. He tells this one wonderful story. 
that he's got a buddy of his that is a um, he's an he, he works in the factory, but in his his passion is acting. So like in his off time, he goes and he does these plays, like like in Danville or something like that. And they're apparently these hilarious plays, and he's a phenomenal actor. And he goes and he just spends time watching this guy in theater. And it's not just because they're friends. He's honoring Christ by doing that. Take the necessary time to see how you can use what God has blessed you with to commit yourself to Christ. If you are passionate about teaching or in the medical profession or something like that, see how you can leverage that passion or that position at least for Christ. If you are passionate about cars or photography or music or hunting, how can you honor Christ with that? Maybe it's basketball or softball. How do you honor Christ with that? It may take some time for you to sit down and actually think about it and pray about it. Lord, how can I? You have put this passion, this desire in my heart. How do I honor you with this? Maybe it's simply praying with the team before the game. Maybe that's all it is. Maybe you work for the plant board or Bluegrass Energy or a factory. Or school. And maybe before the beginning of the day, say, hey guys, before we start, can we just have a time of prayer, just praying for our day? Let's just start out our day by that. Maybe you work with special needs kids in the school. And maybe just the opportunity to be with those kids. And let me just point out one. I know a lot of teachers. I live with one. And it does take a very special individual to be able to work with children who have special needs. It takes a special giftedness to be able to do that. And just by doing that, being the salt and the light right there with that child, that's honoring Christ. Peggy, there are some, some of those children, the only Jesus that they're going to see is the Jesus that is in you. Maybe the only love that they're going to experience. If you're passionate about your family or your grandchildren, your friends, how can you use that passion to witness for Jesus? It may take some effort to do this. Maybe you work for the government four months out of the year or whatever it is. Now, Debbie, you have to work really, really hard on figuring out how to honor Christ with that. But I believe you can do it. <laughs> I am really picking on Debbie this morning. But in all seriousness, if you really, really want to figure out how to, how to use the rest of the year to where it can have, have even more meaning than those two or three days where we're getting ready to celebrate this, these holidays, but it can have eternal impact for the Lord, sit down and evaluate your life and evaluate the passions and the desires that you have and figure out, okay, how can I use that for Christ? How can I honor Christ with that?
The days after Christmas are only a letdown if you believe that Christmas is the end of worship. But in reality, it's just the beginning. Remember those angels? They announce it to the shepherds and they cry out, glory in the highest. Glory in the highest. And they're worshiping. Folks, they've not stopped. They're still doing it. They're still, in, still crying out, glory in the highest. Christmas is not the end of worship, it's the beginning of worship. But today is where the rubber meets the road. Today is. Today is the day where the rubber meets the road, and this road is leading to an encounter, not with the babe in the manger, but with our risen Savior. That's where this road is leading. And so evaluate your lives. And ask the Lord to not just stir up a a passion for Him, but how to use these passions and these desires that He has gifted you with and these positions that He has gifted us with to use for His glory. I really don't believe for the majority of us when it says following the Lamb where He goes, I really don't believe that means that Rayleigh has to quit basketball. All right? That Debbie has to stop going to Myrtle Beach. That Sue has to quit sewing and creating. And that Donna has to quit paying attention to all of her grandchildren. I don't believe that's what that means in order to follow the... I believe what it means is follow the Lamb wherever He goes within the context of what He has blessed you with. He made you for a purpose. And He's made you the way He's made you for a purpose. So figure out what that is. And celebrate that and follow Christ by living that out. And maybe post-Christmas won't be so blah. In fact, maybe we'll just be excited about it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and we love you. There are so many reasons why we love you. One of those reasons, and the primary reason, is because of Christ. Father, help us to follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Help us to honor Christ. Help us to honor You. Help us to listen and heed the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. And Father, stir up a desire in our heart, an affection in our heart, to use the desires and the interests and the passions that you have created us with for your glory. Help us to endure. We love you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.